Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. Over the last couple of years, I've covered a lot of stories that were either directly about Facebook or they related back to the social media platform in some way. From Cambridge Analytica, you know, that whole scandal, there are a couple of episodes about that, to calls from the U.S. government to break up some big tech companies, that's back in the news as I record this, Facebook has had a lot of coverage. It has been front and center, particularly over the last couple of years. There are a lot of good arguments that suggest people would be better off if they were not on Facebook, if they weren't using it, didn't have an account there. And there is plenty of evidence that shows that misinformation campaigns and extremist groups are leveraging Facebook's algorithms to get widespread coverage and momentum, that they are using the social networking site for malicious purposes. And because the site ends up benefiting from this through the whole advertising realm, they have been largely complicit, or at least they haven't cracked down on it as much as they a lot of people feel they should have uh, until fairly recently. Now, all that being said, I got to be upfront with you guys. I still have a Facebook profile over there, and I am still on Facebook way too much. It is a complicated thing because I recognize that it would probably be better if I were not on there, but it's where most of my friends maintain a social presence. And particularly in the era of COVID, I can't get together with my friends in person. And even before COVID was a thing, it was hard to find time for all of us to get together in person anyway. So for folks like me, staying on Facebook can feel like it's a necessity unless I'm just willing to cut ties with my friends. I mean, it's not like people talk on the phone anymore, right? Like, especially my younger friends, the thought of them getting on the phone for a conversation to actually talk on the phone fills a lot of them with anxiety. So I feel like there aren't a whole lot of alternatives. And this got me to thinking that I really wish there were a viable social networking alternative to Facebook. You know, a social media platform that could serve as a place to connect with people, but one that doesn't rely on Facebook's model of engagement, which in turn gives a leg up on those malicious campaigns I mentioned. But we've seen social media platforms come and go, and none have really managed to have staying power. And the ones that are still around are definitely not challenging Facebook for superiority. So today, I thought we would go through some social media platforms that either predated Facebook and then faded away, or they tried to challenge Facebook but failed in some way. Facebook launched in 2004, and there were several social networking sites that existed before that. One of the earliest, and by some accounts, the first true social networking site, was 6degrees.com, which launched in 1997. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the concept of six degrees of separation, that any two people in the world are at most six social connections apart from one another. So the degrees in this case talk about those social links. So for example, I have met the actress Colleen Camp, and she was in Clue the movie. Uh, Madeline Kahn was also in Clue the movie, and Madeline Kahn was in Young Frankenstein with Gene Wilder. So I am two degrees separated from the late, great Gene Wilder, and one degree separated from the late, great Madeline Kahn, in that there are two social contacts that link me with Gene Wilder and one social contact that links me with Madeline Kahn, that being Colleen Camp. Now, to call Colleen Camp a, a social contact is being grandiose. She likely has no memory of me whatsoever. I met her one day on a movie set, but it's just an example I wanted to use. Now, if I went through all of my social contacts, like every single person with whom I have a connection, I might find that my link to Gene Wilder is even closer. It may be that one of my 
friends or, or acquaintances worked directly with Gene Wilder. But you get the idea. And this concept was turned into something of a game, uh, the famous game of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, where you would try to find the fewest number of professional acting links between Kevin Bacon and some other actor. So you would just name different films that the uh, actors were in to try and find a link to Kevin Bacon. The joke being that Kevin Bacon was in so much stuff that you frequently didn't have to go more than three links before you, you found a connection. Anyway, SixDegrees.com was a social platform where you could upload photos and you could connect with friends. You know, the basic stuff of making a profile and connecting with people uh, that all social networks sort of share in common. And you could also then see the folks that your friends are friends with. So you could connect with people up to three degrees out from your personal contacts. And it was one of those early platforms that really demonstrated you know, that small world phenomenon, how our social circles have way more overlap in them than we typically realize. I'm sure you've had an experience where you saw two friends that you know from very different circles in life talking with one another and think, how do they know each other? Because in my world, this person belongs to this group of friends and that person belongs to this totally disconnected group of friends. That happens a lot. And SixDegrees.com was kind of about illustrating that. But there was a problem. You see, now in 1997, a lot of folks had not really yet ventured into the internet world at large or the World Wide Web in particular. So while a, a relatively large number of people were signing up for SixDegrees.com, you often felt really isolated on the site because while there were a lot of people collectively it's not like a lot of people everyone knew were on there at the same time. So there were just not enough people that folks knew. There weren't enough friends or acquaintances also on Six Degrees. It was like a bunch of disconnected individuals who were on there. So it was more like a bunch of tiny island chains separated by vast oceans than an interconnected social network. A media called Youth Stream Media which uh, specialized in developing internet sites with the youth market in mind, typically, you know, like high school and college kids, ended up purchasing SixDegrees.com in 1999 for a cool $125 million, a princely sum indeed. But YouthStream apparently couldn't do much with Six Degrees, and a year later, the site would go dark. Just two years after that, another company called Alloy, acquired Youthstream Media's assets, the entire company's assets, for just $7 million. Now, $7 million is a lot of money. I know saying just makes it sound like it's not, but when you consider that Youthstream paid $125 million for six degrees, and then another company bought Youthstream's assets for just $7 million, you really see where the value of that company plummeted. So what happened? Well, the dot-com bubble burst, for one thing. As for SixDegrees.com, it eventually returned in some form or another, though I honestly don't know what it looks like today, because when I went to go check it out with my browser as part of my research for this episode, my browser told me, yo, buddy, I really don't think you should go in there essentially saying the site is insecure, possibly a host of malware, and I don't want any of that garbage on my computer, so I quietly backed away. Now, 6degrees.com wasn't a bad idea. It was just way ahead of its time. There weren't enough people. There wasn't enough saturation on the web to make the model work. But the idea behind it was obviously solid because Anyone who has studied social networks, online or otherwise, would recognize the value proposition. Now, a few other folks would try to launch social networking sites over the next couple of years, but I think it's fair to say that the first that got some mainstream traction was Friendster, and that one would come out in 2002. So five years after Six Degrees had originally launched, and two years before Facebook would launch. Now, Friendster was founded by Jonathan Abrams and Peter Chen, and this site also subscribed to that six degrees of separation concept. If you looked at someone's profile, you'd see how you were connected to that person and whether or not it was a close connection. So perhaps you might have a mutual friend in common with that person, or you would see if it was a more tenuous connection, like 
I know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows that person kind of thing. And like a lot of social networking sites, it was used primarily by people who are looking to find a date. Um, or at least a lot of people were using it that way. Maybe primarily is too strong a word, but it was a popular use for the site. Oh, and uh, profiles also had a view counter attached to them. Fun times. Now, I don't know if you guys remember when it seemed like every web page on the internet required a view counter. Uh, it was a little counter up in typically, you know, the top of the page, maybe in the corner, and it would just tell you how many people had visited the website. And it became a way to gauge not just the popularity of the, the web page or website, but also by extension, it gave an implication of whether or not the site was a good quality. You know, the idea being that if that many people have visited the site, then it must be doing something right. And we still see elements of this today, of course, you know, like in view numbers for YouTube videos or how many people like or share a post on various social media sites or tweets, that kind of thing. But uh, we don't typically see them on web pages as much these days. Now, Friendster started strong, but with popularity comes challenges. And one of those was just in scaling. As more people were joining the site and were making profiles and uploading photos and interacting with one another, the company had to scale up the backend systems. And this became challenging. Google would actually come forward and make an offer of $30 million to acquire the company in 2003, but the business owners turned that offer down. And that was probably one of the reasons the company would later remove the founder, Jonathan Abrams, as CEO in 2004. The idea of, we could have cashed out, and you said no. Following Abrams' departure as CEO, there was a, the old revolving door routine of other CEOs. I mean, seriously, if you look at a list, it's just like one replaced by another, typically more than one in a year, which is really bad. And users began to abandon the site. They were frustrated by performance problems, and that linked back to those challenges with scaling. And the users were flocking over to another social networking site, one that for a while seemed like it was going to be the definitive social networking platform, MySpace, because this was, you know, a little bit later after MySpace had gotten started, but we'll get back to MySpace later in this episode. Before that, I should probably explain what actually happened with Friendster. It floundered as a social media platform for several more years. It lasted long enough to see MySpace eventually fall behind the upstart competitor of Facebook. Spoiler alert there, as if you didn't know. But in 2011, Friendster changed from a social networking platform to more of a social gaming network. And this was really kind of an effort to get out of the trap it had found itself in uh, by competing directly with Facebook. It couldn't do that. That was clearly a, a lost cause. So Friendster would instead operate as a social gaming network, and they did that for a few more years, but ultimately shut down in 2015, and the brand is pretty much non-existent today. So with Friendster, we have a social networking site that pre-existed Facebook, but was unable to scale to serve a growing user base and thus giving opportunities to competitors. And the next platform I should talk about is High Five. It's H-I and the numeral five. This is a social network site that made a profit in its first year of operation. It was actually a profitable web-based business right out of the gate. Not a very common thing, even today. Now, this is according to CBS News, by the way. Uh, there was an entrepreneur named Ramu Yalamanchi who founded the site in 2003, and I do apologize for my pronunciation of his name. I am uh, terribly ignorant, and that is all on me. But anyway, while I was researching this episode and I came across High Five, I thought, huh, that's a social networking site I don't think I've ever heard of before, except... Maybe I have, because apparently I already created a profile for it. See, High Five is still around today, at least theoretically it is. And so I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll make a profile on there. I'll, I'll create a profile to check out what this site looks like. Only when I tried to do that, when I tried to make a profile with my, my private email address, I got a message that said that my email was blocked. 
which was odd because it's not like I'm using a particularly, you know, shady email service. It's Gmail. For those who want to know, it's nothing bad. Uh, so I thought, huh, that's weird. Well, maybe what that means is that I may have already made a high five account and I just forgot about it. So I chose the forgot my password feature, you know, that useful thing. And then I put my email address in the little field and I hit the button and the site said it was going to send an email to me with instructions on how I could log in and as of this moment, I have not received that email. That was hours ago when I, I did that. Nothing has happened since. So there are a few possibilities. One is that it's just taking a really long time. Maybe High Five servers are few and far between and overloaded. Another possibility is that the site just isn't active, like I had been led to believe, and that it's really dormant. Uh, I can't really find any information that says one way or the other. Another possibility is that I never had a profile on there and everyone gets the message about an email being sent, whether they have a profile on High Five or not, if they go through that whole forgot my password process. So I could find that out by just making up a fake email address and or making a brand new email address even and putting it in the field. But I didn't go through that that phase. I was already fed up. So I did try to sign in or sign up with a, my work email address and that didn't work either. So honestly, I'm just not sure if there's anything going on at High Five or not. I mean, there is a page there. It's not like it goes to, you know, some page that says that you can get the, the URL or anything, but I can't make it do anything. But anyway, High Five started off as another social network site where you would create a profile with information about yourself. Uh, there was supposed to be an age restriction. Users were supposed to be at least 13 years old, but the site had no means of authenticating a person's age. So, you know, there you go. The site would prompt new users to add friends through their contacts with existing services like Yahoo Mail, or Hotmail, and boy, those take me back. And users could customize their profile pages. They could do stuff like change the background color of their profile. They could move things around on their profile. If they wanted to, they could even go into HTML editing mode and really change things up and customize things if they, if they so desired. But from the reports I've read, very few people went to the trouble of doing that. Uh, and it also, like its predecessors, was tying into that, that concept of six degrees of separation. Now, like Friendster and like some others that will be on this list, High Five would attempt to evolve as sites like MySpace and later Facebook began to dominate the social networking sphere. In 2009, the site changed into more of a social gaming site, similar to what happened with Friendster. A company called Tagged acquired High Five's assets in 2011, and then Tagged itself would get scooped up by a company called The Meat Group, that's M-E-E-T, not M-E-A-T, which is a totally different and frankly horrifying company. But anyway, The Meat Group got them in 2017. Jumping back to 2003, a couple months after High Five launched, we got MySpace. Now, I've done full episodes about MySpace and the whole story of the rise and fall of the platform is fascinating. There's a ton of drama going on there. So for this episode, I'm not going to go into all that detail. I'll give you more of a high overview. And I'll do that after we take this short break. MySpace was monumentally successful in the early days of social networking. Uh, you had your customizable profile pages, similar to what High Five was doing. There was a fairly robust music industry presence on MySpace from the get-go, and it became something of a hallmark that if you had a MySpace page, you would add songs to your profile, uh, and someone visiting your profile would be treated or would be forced to endure the music you had selected. If you were particularly mischievous, you could design your profile page so that the playback controls, like pause and, and play and everything, were very hard to find on the page so that people who did visit your profile would have no option but to listen to whatever music you had selected. But gosh darn it, I needed everyone to really groove to Tarzan Boy by Baltimore. It was important. 
This was also the site where you would have your top eight friends. You could have lots and lots of MySpace friends, but on your profile page, you would only see the top eight listed uh, in the early days. And Tom, one of the founders of MySpace, was automatically your friend from the beginning. You could give him the boot if you wanted to, but Tom was everyone's friend when they first joined MySpace. Ah, Tom, what a mensch. Now, for the first few years of its existence, it seemed as though MySpace was going to be the definitive social networking site. It was like, this is this company's just on the up and up. News Corp, the company that owned Fox News, among lots of other stuff, Rupert Murdoch's company, in other words, would end up buying MySpace in 2005 for more than half a billion dollars, a truly princely sum. And in 2006, MySpace became the most visited site on the entire web. It was valued at $12 billion in 2007. It was just astounding. Like, you would think it's too big to fail, right? And then it failed. Funny how that happens. So MySpace did very well early on, but it didn't have fierce competition either. Facebook, which caught on with college kids, because when it first debuted, Facebook membership was exclusive to people who had a university or college email address. You couldn't join if you didn't, so it was almost entirely college kids when it launched. Anyway, it ended up getting a ton of momentum after that launch and when it opened up to the general public, and it was a, a young demographic. And by 2008, Facebook started to leave MySpace behind. They, were, they had more users, and people were spending more time on Facebook than on MySpace. News Corp tried to pivot. They redesigned MySpace a few times to try and win people back over to the platform, but they couldn't really do much other than, you know, slow the flow of users from their site to the rival of Facebook. It was like putting a, a Band-Aid on a truly massive wound. It just wasn't enough. And eventually, News Corp sold MySpace to a company called Specific Media for $35 million. So again, News Corp paid $580 million for the site, and then they sold it for $35 million. I don't think I need to point out that that's not a great deal. Today, MySpace is technically still around, though it's really focused more on entertainment in general and the music industry in particular, and it's less of a social networking space for users. Like some of the other sites we've talked about on here so far, the only way MySpace was able to stick around at all was to switch its focus from being a social networking platform to a different central focus, but still incorporating some social elements to the experience. So it's more like it's a site about music that has some social networking features along with it. Now, our next social platform that preceded Facebook is Orkut. Now, this one only came out a month before Facebook did, but technically that makes it earlier. It debuted in January 2004, and Orkut grew out of Google, where the company had this standing policy that employees could devote 20% of their work week to their own personal projects within Google. And one of those projects was Orkut. Now, there have been subsequent allegations that Orkut really was a replica of uh, uh, an earlier project that the same engineer had created for a different company called Affinity Engines, but that that's its own thing. Now, you might recall I mentioned that Google had attempted to acquire Friendster a couple of years earlier, but had been turned down. Orkut would become Google's first real experiment in social networking platforms. And at first, the service was by invitation only, which helped drive interest in the platform because it turns out people like to feel that they're part of an exclusive club. And Google would employ this same strategy for several of its products further down the line, from Gmail to another social networking platform we'll get to later in this episode. But going invitation only meant that new users might only know a couple of other people on the entire network, which made it really hard to build out a circle of friends and meant that Orkut didn't have a whole lot of usefulness for those folks. MySpace would end up taking off faster, although Orkut would end up finding some traction in Brazil. Over time, Brazil and India would become the two main markets where users were flocking to on Orkut. But 
it was largely a bust in the United States. One interesting fact, at one point, Marissa Meyer, who would go on to be the CEO of Yahoo, was the product manager for Orkut. Now, the features of Orkut are familiar to anyone who has visited a social networking platform. Users would have profiles and they could add friends on their network. Uh, unlike some other examples, Orkut actually allowed users to visit any profile that was hosted on the platform, at least at first. The other platforms typically would restrict you to only being able to visit your friends' profiles or maybe a couple of degrees out from your friends. But beyond that, you wouldn't be able to visit a profile. So if it's a complete stranger where you didn't have any contacts in common and they were too far separated from you, you wouldn't be allowed to see it. Orkut was different. Now, eventually they did change that. But at first, you could visit any profile on the service. For several years... Orkut would remain more popular in Brazil and India than rival social networking sites. So it was outperforming MySpace, it was outperforming Facebook, but eventually Facebook caught up and then surpassed Orkut in both of those countries. Meanwhile, Google had turned its fleeting attention to a different social networking platform from within the company, which we'll get to a little bit later. And so Orkut was essentially operating without a whole lot of support from Google. It would limp along until 2014 when Google would officially shut it down. Now, I think Orkut's main drawback was that limited access very early on, and that meant that users who couldn't get an invite instead would head over to somewhere else, like MySpace. And typically, once you establish an online presence somewhere, you don't have a lot of motivation to build it out again somewhere else. So the likelihood of building out on other networks starts to go down. Now, some people are more than happy to maintain a profile on multiple social networking sites, but I think a lot of us prefer to focus on one or two at the most. Like Facebook and Twitter are the two that tend to go hand in hand. Orkut didn't have the momentum needed to keep up with MySpace and definitely didn't have the foundation to withstand the Facebook flood that would happen around 2008. Facebook debuted the month after Orkut first launched, so in February 2004. But heck, this episode is all about the attempts to make it an alternative to Facebook, so there's no real point talking about Facebook itself. Suffice it to say that the social media platform has grown beyond all expectations and plays an incredibly important role when it comes to the dissemination of ideas and ideologies. Who would have thought that what originally started out as a flimsy excuse to try and find dates at a college-university campus would eventually become a potential threat to democracy and security. But moving on. In 2005, a San Francisco couple launched a social networking site they called Bebo, B-E-B-O. It would see more success in the United Kingdom and in Ireland than it would in the United States. In fact, it actually became more popular than MySpace over there in the UK and in Ireland at one point. Once again, the site had the hallmarks of your typical social networking services. You could have a profile, you could post blogs, you could share videos and music and photographs and do that kind of stuff. And the success in the UK led to the company AOL taking notice of Bebo and making a move that in hindsight often gets lumped in with the worst deals of all time in the tech space. AOL bought Bebo for the princely sum of $850 million, yowza. And the couple who launched Bebo had like 70% stake in the company, so they had something like more than $500 million between the two of them. Man, and this happened in 2008. So AOL was essentially trying to establish its presence in the social networking space by taking a shortcut. You know, companies do this all the time where they will scale up, not by building out their, their assets, but just buying new assets and trying to incorporate them into the existing company structure, which doesn't always work so well. And it did not work well for AOL. Uh, the motivation to really get into the social networking space really pushed AOL to pay way too much for Bebo. Now, granted, in 2008, it was hard to predict that Facebook was going to eclipse all other social networking sites around the world. Maybe there was hope that Bebo could maintain its own special space on the web, particularly in places like the UK. 
But the numbers began to fall, and in just two years, AOL started to look for a way to offload those assets, or they were going to shut the whole thing down. In 2010, AOL would sell Bebo to an investment company called Criterion Capital Partners for a fraction of what they paid for it, reportedly just $10 million. So to recap, AOL spent $850 million on Bebo in 2008, and then in 2010 sold it for $10 million. Now this makes the News Corp acquisition and unloading of MySpace look tame by comparison. But Criterion Capital failed to really leverage Bebo, just as AOL had failed to do it. And so a couple of years later, that same couple who had launched the site in the first place and made you know half a billion dollars off of it, uh, they ended up buying Bebo back for just $1 million. So a fraction of a percent of what they were paid for it. That's not bad at all. Bebo would relaunch in 2015. It floundered a bit. It rebranded. It became more about supporting Twitch streamers by offering up streaming software. You know, kind of like overlays and video switchers and stuff that streamers use whenever they are live streaming on Twitch. And in 2019, Amazon, the owner of Twitch, acquired Bebo for $25 million. So that story kind of ends there. In 2007, we got a few more social networks with different value propositions. One of those was Tumblr, the microblogging site. And Tumblr's still around today, uh, but this one was enjoying popularity among younger users for several years. It was like, a slightly younger crowd than what you were finding on other social networking sites. And it passed through various corporate ownership. Uh, Yahoo owned it for a while. It acquired the company for more than a billion dollars, uh, uh, an incredible amount of money. Verizon then went on to buy Yahoo assets, including Tumblr. So Tumblr went with that. Verizon ultimately couldn't figure out really what to do with Tumblr and sold it off to a company called Automatic. That is the current owner of Tumblr. One of Tumblr's problems is that the site hosted a lot of adult content, meaning people were posting adult content like pornography to Tumblr to the point that it was becoming part of the site's reputation. And that proved to be a real problem for some of these corporate owners. I mean, they couldn't very well talk about owning a site that was largely trafficking in pornography to shareholders. And so over different eras at Tumblr, there were different restrictions put in place with regard to the kinds of content that could be shared. And that changed Tumblr quite a bit. Uh, Tumblr, like I said, is still around today, of course, though it does see a lot less traffic than it did at its height. Now, out of curiosity, I went to see if I had an account on Tumblr, and I do. I don't have any recollection of when I last logged into that account. It's been a few years, but the account still exists, it's still active, all the posts I could see when I logged in and casually scrolled through were all from the official Tumblr account. So I have no idea if anyone that I used to follow on Tumblr is actually still active over there. So I'm starting to sense a theme. And on a side note about Tumblr, there's one event I really want to mention because it is infamous. It doesn't directly tie into our topic, but I don't know when I will ever get a chance to talk about it otherwise, so I'll want to do it here. This is one of those examples of something that had been built up to be a really special celebration, but fell far short of what was promised, which is putting it lightly. I'm talking, of course, about DashCon, which was Fire Festival before there was a Fire Festival though on a, a much more modest scale. So for those who don't know about this at all, DashCon, which was originally called TumbleCon, although the organizers would change the name in order to show that the convention was not officially a sanctioned Tumblr event or anything like that, it was meant to be a gathering of the Tumblr community to allow Tumblr creators, many of whom were creating incredible video and art, to get together and to celebrate their community. And it was going to have panels and special performances by bands. Uh, the podcasts were going to be there, including Welcome to Night Vale, which was really taking off in popularity and, and had a huge following on Tumblr. 
and it was supposed to take place in the summer of 2014. A small group of organizers who, I think it's safe to say, were clearly out of their depth, attempted to throw together a three-day convention, and they rented out a space, and they created a packed schedule with lots of stuff to do, and a lot of grandiose promises about what was going to be there, and there was a ball pit. The famous ball pit. Well, there were problems from the very beginning, before the convention even got around, but those problems became apparent at the beginning of the convention itself. Really, just as the convention was getting started, the organizers announced to the relatively small crowd that was there that the hotel they were using as the host for this convention was demanding full payment for the entire weekend in advance, and that was an amount equal to $17,000. Now, according to the organizers, they anticipated that they would have all the money to pay for the hotel by the end of the weekend just from the attendance of the convention, but they didn't have the money on hand. So it's like a, a liquidity problem. They didn't have the liquid assets available. So they took up a collection from the people who were there. And amazingly, they got enough money to meet that $17,000 goal. Now, there were talk of reimbursements that people were going to get paid back whatever money they were putting in. Because again, the organizers were saying, hey, we should be making enough money from admissions to cover that cost. So really, this is just so that we can pay the bill and then you'll get your money back. But from what I can tell, there never really was a sincere effort put forward to even keep track of who was donating how much money. So I'm not sure that that was ever going to work out. And it ended up being a moot point anyway. Now, that massive problem was really just the start of the issues, with it soon becoming clear that guests were canceling, performances were not going to happen, the Night Vale crew left because the payment they had been promised had fallen through. It was really ugly, and making matters worse, the organizers had no real way to make this up to the attendees, apart from promising some extra time in the ball pit, which, I mean, if you haven't seen the photos... You need to search Dashcon Ball Pit. It's just this little inflated pool filled with maybe a couple thousand plastic balls. We? Now, I would do a whole episode about Dashcon, but really, you should just head over to YouTube and watch a video that's titled Tumblr's Failed Convention, The Story of Dashcon. It's by Sarah Z. Sarah is a talented essayist, a video essayist on YouTube. She has no connection to me. As far as I know, she doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know I'm talking about this. I just really like her work. And her piece is thoroughly researched. It's really interesting. It's also 50 minutes long. So it's kind of like a tech stuff episode anyway. Anyway, Dashcon was an unmitigated disaster. And some of the stank of that failure would rub off on Tumblr itself, which is hardly fair. Anyway, I had to throw that in here, plus give a shout out to Sarah Z's YouTube. Seriously, go check out that video. It's, it's pretty dope, as the kids are like to say. When we come back, I'll chat about a couple of other challenges to the throne of Facebook, and we'll pontificate for a short while whether it's even possible for some new platform to make a space in a Facebook-dominated web. But first, let's take another quick break. Another service that launched the same year that Tumblr launched was FriendFeed. Now, this wasn't really so much of a standalone social networking site, but more of an aggregator created by some former Google employees. Now, you could post stuff just to FriendFeed if you wanted to. You could post photos and files and messages. But the main attraction was that you could link FriendFeed to other services, like your Facebook profile or Twitter or Flickr or YouTube. Uh, and let's just say that I join FriendFeed and I connect with you as my first friend. Hi, friend. Now, at that point, I would see a feed of all the stuff you were posting on the services you had connected to FriendFeed. And I would see it in real time and post it in reverse chronological order. So the most recent posts would be at the top of the page. So assuming you had connected all of your services to FriendFeed and let's say that you had just posted something to Facebook, 
I would see your Facebook status update within FriendFeed. And then let's say after that you popped over to Twitter and you posted a tweet. Well, then I would see the tweet pop up on FriendFeed. So instead of having to follow someone on multiple services, like I'm following you on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, I could just follow your friend feed and get everything you were posting, or at least everything you chose to share with friend feed. And that ended up making it really, you know, kind of useful. Now, not everyone was crazy about this because one big concern was that if you linked, say, a blog post to friend feed, the concern was that people were going to read the content on friend feed, but they wouldn't actually click through to go visit the blog. And if the blog is supported by advertising, as most blogs were, that's not very good because it would mean that the blogger was getting lower page views and that would mean that they would see less revenue from their work. So people would be reading their stuff, but it wouldn't be counting toward the ad deals that these blogging sites had. So that was something of a problem. Facebook thought that FriendFeed was a pretty rad idea. So in 2009, just two years after FriendFeed had launched, Facebook announced plans to acquire the service for a reported $50 million. Facebook continued to allow the service to operate. It never really caught on in a big way. I mean, the people who used it tended to like it, but not that many people were using it. And Facebook would finally pull the plug on the service in 2015. The last friend had been fed, I suppose. And a third social networking site that began in 2007 was Twitch, though not not actually Twitch, not in that form. It was really the predecessor of Twitch, aka Justin.tv. That launched in 2007. It was a live streaming video service that really changed in a big way a couple years later because it became clear that video game streamers were dominating the platform. It necessitated the company to spin off a new video game streaming service. That's the one that was called Twitch.tv. Eventually, Justin.tv would become part of uh, like a subsidiary of twitch.tv. And a little bit later, it would just get shut down entirely. Twitch.tv became the only focus of the company. Ultimately, Amazon would come along and acquire that. And of course, twitch.tv is still extremely active today, but it's also a very different platform from Facebook. You can't really compare the two. I should add, however, that Facebook really hopes to get into that space by launching their own streaming video services and trying to challenge Twitch. So Twitch isn't really trying to play in Facebook's yard, but Facebook is trying to play in Twitch's yard. This is something that Facebook has done on numerous occasions with other sites as well. Then you've got stuff like Instagram, which Facebook would ultimately acquire, and you've got, you know, Snapchat, but these social networks also come at things in a very different way from Facebook. Uh, they made a space not through competition with Facebook, but by creating something new and different. And then Facebook would either try to emulate what these companies were doing, or they would just try to buy the ding-dang companies and, and mutate them to fit within Facebook's own business model. We see that today with stuff like you know Twitch and TikTok. The next traditional social networking platform that I really want to talk about arrived in 2011. This was Google's second really big push to get back into social networking. Now, they had tried a couple of other things in between Orkut and this. Uh, there was Google Buzz and Google Friend Connect, but neither of those got very far. So this one was called Google+. Plus. Now, I remember the launch of Google Plus really well because I was one of those jerks who got early access to it when it was invitation only. And when I joined Google Plus, most of the people who were on the site were either in the tech industry or they were in the tech journalism industry. So it was, a, it was kind of like being in an exclusive club of my peers, and that was a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. It felt like we were all in our own little clubhouse. And like Orkut years earlier, Google chose to make Google Plus invitation-only network at first to kind of control things and scale things up. Uh, I suppose they wanted to do this gradually and avoid the pitfalls that come with like a massive influx of users all at the same time. Uh, old school Twitter users probably remember the fail whale, a character that would pop up whenever Twitter would crash, usually because of server overload. Google didn't want that stuff to happen. 
But while this metered addition of users might have meant that the servers weren't being overtaxed, it also created that feeling of exclusivity and more people wanted in to try stuff out. And then when they finally did get into Google+, they were disappointed to find that you know, it really wasn't that special. And it really wasn't. Now, that's not to say Google Plus was bad. I don't think it was bad. It just wasn't remarkable. And so it would be natural for someone who had their expectations really built up to be this amazing thing. Like you're going to go and see the chocolate factory. They're going to be disappointed. And Google Plus was kind of not at fault for all of that. Partially a fault, I guess. And it did have some cool features. One of those was that you could organize the people you know into different circles. Like you would literally drop and drag names into different circles. So for example, you could have a circle that you make for your close friends and another for family members and one for coworkers and maybe one for acquaintances. You could have people belong to more than one circle if you liked. So let's say that, you know, there's a cousin you're particularly close to. So that cousin's both in your family circle and your close friend circle. When you post something, you could choose which circles in your network could see that post. So maybe you want to post something about a birthday party and you just want friends and family to see it. You don't want to include like coworkers or distant acquaintances, that kind of thing. It was pretty easy to do that. Easier, I would argue, than the way Facebook does it. You could also create a circle for no goodniks whom you wish to ignore. And you wouldn't see those folks on Google+, and they wouldn't be able to see your stuff either. Google made things a bit blurry with Google+, in that if you were to make a Google account for stuff like YouTube or Gmail, that was a Google account that was good across all Google services. So... Let's say you sign up an account so that you can have a Gmail address. Your Google login would give you access not just to Gmail, but also you could have a YouTube account so you could start uploading videos if you wanted. Uh, you would have a Google Drive account where you could store files and use services like Google Docs. Google Plus was part of that package, and I think it's safe to say there were a lot of folks who had a Google account but they rarely, if ever, would duck into Google+. That became more apparent when you started looking at engagement versus the number of active users. Google+, had a high active user number within the first couple of years of launch. Really high. Like, it was on track to be a Facebook competitor. But those users were barely spending any time at all on the actual platform. In January 2012, CNN reported that users were spending about three and a half minutes on Google Plus for the month of January, whereas they had spent seven and a half hours on Facebook. That's not even competitive, right? And there's a lot more I could say about Google Plus and that experiment, including how Google forced YouTube creators to have accounts linked to Google Plus accounts for a while, and how all of that turned into a total disaster. But I think that would warrant its own episode. When it comes to explaining failures, I think Google Plus really fell short of expectations. It didn't provide enough of a reason for people to leave Facebook for Google Plus. And also, Google did a great job at alienating a large percentage of its user base by, you know, forcing the linking of accounts together. Now, I think I'm going to end this with a quick overview of the social networking site Ello, E-L-L-O, created by Paul Budnitz and Todd Berger. They launched the site in 2014, and the founders were trying to do something that I think was a really nice idea, just ultimately didn't take off. They wanted to launch a social networking site where you are not the product. That was actually a, a quote in their manifesto. And that gets back to how Facebook makes money, which is largely through advertising. And we, the users, are the product that Facebook is selling. Facebook is selling access to us to various advertisers. And it's not just the fact that there are a lot of people on Facebook. I mean, that alone makes it valuable, but it's also that by interacting on Facebook, by sharing our interests, by commenting on things, by liking things, we're giving Facebook an extremely detailed look at who we are as people, at our preferences. Facebook knows what we like and what we don't like. It knows what sort of stuff catches our attention and what we're likely going to just scroll right past. That means advertisers can target people who are most likely to respond to their ads. A Facebook user isn't valuable just because they use Facebook. 
they might be valuable because they happen to like shoes or sports or, you know, a particular band. And so much of Facebook's decisions, many of which have proven to be detrimental to society in the long run, are motivated by the desire to serve customers, which would be their advertisers. And they want to serve them the best product, which is our information. Ello said, to heck with all that. Our social network isn't going to have ads on it. The idea was you would get a stripped-down, ad-free experience on Ello. You could build out your social network, you could have a profile, all without fear that all your activities were really just metrics that were being analyzed by algorithms so that the service provider could sell ad space to you. But the deluge of interested users who flocked to Ello when it was still nothing but an invite field where you would just type in your email address indicated there was going to be a problem. The service wasn't really ready to handle the number of people who wanted to try it, which of course led back to that whole exclusivity feel again. However, Ello chose to keep accepting new users rather than shut down operations or you know close off choke points. They said, we're just going to deal with this. If the service goes down, we'll get it back up as fast as we can, but we don't want to end up making this like an exclusive club. According to analysts, a lot of LO users would get access to the site and then not do anything else. A company called RGA Metrics took a sample of more than 150,000 LO users and found that 36% of the accounts they looked at had never posted anything. And only 20% of users who had signed up remained active users six days afterward. So in other words, one out of every five users who signed up would still be active six days later. That's not great. Ello seemed to have a lot of initial appeal, but no staying power. And I think a big part of the problem was that, well, everyone was already over on Facebook. So unless your whole social circle is making the move with you, then it doesn't do you any good to jump off Facebook because no one you know is on the new network. It's the same problem lots of other attempts have had. Posting on Ello was kind of like posting on Six Degrees way back in 1997. There's a good chance no one you knew was ever going to see it. It was sort of a catch-22 problem. Ello would pivot like a lot of other social networking sites, and it ultimately changed its focus to be more of an artist-centric network. Ello is a great place to discover artists who are working in different types of media, but it's not a replacement for Facebook. And it makes you wonder if anyone will ever create a social networking site that has the appeal and stickiness of Facebook. Some days, that just seems like it's impossible. That It's no way that's ever going to happen. But then, there was also a time when it was obvious, quote-unquote, that MySpace was going to be the future of social networking. And that played out very differently. So who knows? Maybe Facebook's also too big to fail. Wink, wink. That's all for this episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for topics I should tackle in the future, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 